This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for being with us again. Albert Einstein once said, education is not the learning of facts, but the training of the mind to think. So why is it that the American educational system isn't turning out more critical thinkers? It's a very important question, and we're going to talk about it today with Dr. Stephen Perlman. He is a critical thinking expert and educator, has worked in higher education for 30 years, and is co-founder of the Critical Thinking Initiative, as well as the author of the book we'll be discussing, which is called America's Critical Thinking Crisis, The Failure and Promise of Education. And welcome, Steve. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, I know that it's difficult sometimes to give a really perfect definition of this phrase, critical thinking. How do we best define this when we're discussing critical thinking? What are we really talking about? That's a great question. And one of the challenges with it, in fact, is that so many educators lack a functional definition of it because it is so big. I think for our purposes here today, any mix of things like problem solving and logic, decision making, um, evidence based thinking and so forth are good cognates for an overall conception of critical thinking. Uh, The challenge is that no matter how we define it in terms of research, schools aren't necessarily producing it. Well, they're not. And I think many of us who've gone through the educational system can attest to that. I don't remember ever having a course in logic, for example, but I can see why people would need to have a course in logic, especially today when you're watching the news. But why is it that we need better critical thinking education in our system? What is the benefit of having critical thinking skills when you get out of school? Well, you can't open up an episode of Forbes magazine or the Wall Street Journal without seeing some executive, some CEO who's clamoring for colleges to produce students who can think critically because they need right now in the corporate world, as well as in the military, when we talk to them, the thing they need most are graduates who can think critically and think on their feet. The challenges are no longer the acquisition of data, which it used to be 10 years ago and 20 years ago, is getting enough data. Now they don't have people who know what to do with it. They don't know how people who can identify what the next problems are going to be and solve for those problems ahead of time. And to make matters worse, this is not true globally. There are other countries in the world that are far ahead of the United States in terms of starting to train their students from grammar school up in critical thinking skills. Well, yeah, you're right. And I know there are many, many people in America who do value critical thinking, education and skills. Why aren't they getting it? What is wrong with the education system such that we're lacking that kind of critical instruction, to coin a phrase? That's a great question. And first of all, I want to say very importantly that we never blame educators for this. Educators are often ones who want to change and be able to adapt to new ways to teach critical thinking. The central problem is that, first of all, the technology, and by that I don't mean the uh, literal technology in terms of an iPad or something, but the, the methods for teaching critical thinking didn't really exist for a very long time because people didn't figure out what that really involved and what mechanisms actually teach it for the brain, and we are now figuring that out. The second problem, though, is that 
really we have an educational system that's predicated on the acquisition of knowledge, hmm. that we learn our facts, we learn information, we read things to understand what they say, not to question what they say, and so on and so forth. And as a result of that, we have a whole populace of people who are not trained how to critically analyze things that are going on in the world, how to anticipate problems, because they have been habituated to accepting knowledge within them that's given to them by the school system. And that's not healthy. Well, it's not. And, and this is kind of strange. How is it that we came to believe that it's just the transferring of facts or sitting there for an hour and a half and listening to a lecture, maybe if you're in an academic setting at a college or university, and that is what we call education rather than teaching people how to think? Why are we not understanding this? I mean, certainly cultures way before ours understood this. Well, there are two. This is a fabulous question, and I seldom get asked it. And there are two factors that are at play here. Um, one of the factors is that it, educational systems started from a Germanic tradition of lecture when there was very limited knowledge to be known, right? And then there weren't enough books on it. So there was an, a literal someone who knew those things who could lecture them out to a group of people, and those other people would learn them, and that was the only way to do it. And there was only a very limited amount of knowledge to begin with. So it could, you could learn everything about a field through a series of lectures by an expert and yeah, so on. Yeah. Around the turn of the century, the previous one, uh, at the Industrial Revolution, very unfortunately, our government made the conscious decision, you go back and read what the Secretary of Education had to say about it, but made the con- conscious decision to have our schools train people to become in factory workers. Mm. And so uh, that's how the times are regimented, the subjects are distinct. But what they said was that if we teach people to have be creative, interesting thinkers and so forth and not train them to listen to authority and follow the clock, they're going to leave very unhappy lives when they go to work in the factories. So they decided to actually create what is a relatively oppressive system of education as a result of that. Well, that is disheartening when you put it that way, because, of course, that's that's for a lot of us to hear that makes us think, well, wait a minute, we're not robots. We're not trained animals. And certainly we've come a long way since since that time period. So so what now? What do we do now when that mindset is still with us? How do you even turn that around or begin to turn that around? It's very challenging to change it because educational structures are built so deeply, and my colleague and I try very hard to adjust those structures so that educators have the capacity to teach differently, which many educators very much want to do. But then they will say things like, well, wait a second, I have to get through this amount of material this semester. The students have to learn these, you know, number of things, and it's a high number of things this semester. And then we have to have a conversation. We have to say, well, there are two things on that. First of all is, why do they really need to learn it? How much of that do they really need going forward? Because we know for the most part, they don't recall most of what they learn in school. None of us do. Uh, But the second question is, why is the presumption that there's only one way to learn it? And there are other ways to learn things. And we learn things through a critical thinking process. We learn them more deeply. That information persists for a longer period of time and so on. So we can just change the process and actually achieve stronger outcomes in terms of how much students learn, how deeply they learn it. It's just that people don't perceive it that way. They think that there is a battle between either teaching them knowledge or teaching them thinking. 
Yeah, you're right about that. So, you know, what immediately comes to my mind is the Socratic method. And people will go back to that where you, you ask a question and the student is actually thinking through it by having to answer the questions. And I've seen that employed here and there when I think back on my own education. But can't we go back and learn from people like Socrates or other thinkers in education, you know, going back to the trivium, for example, with grammar and rhetoric and logic and those sorts of things and employ those kinds of methods? Because I know in some circles you do have a return, for instance, of classical education because people are dying for a more rigorous kind of curriculum that would employ critical thinking. Yeah, I think some of those moves are steps in positive directions. Uh, Something like Socraticism in the classroom does get students to think, but what we want everyone to understand and what's so critical for us to understand is that there's a distinction between getting students to think and teaching them how to think. Yes. And that's where we do our work, is that we don't just encourage faculty to get students thinking, which they might have done already in terms of presenting an interesting idea or having a discussion or what have you in class. It's actually teaching a process for how to think through any problem and mm-hmm. how to, and we teach faculty how to assess it. So now we're not assessing them based on how much they know. We're assessing them on how well they are thinking through something. Well, that's good. And would you have different parameters, for example, when you're talking about younger students versus university students? Clearly, they're on the, not on the same level. But when you're, when you're talking about teaching a student how to think, is that as important in your mind? And should it be as rigorous when you are young as when you are older and about to get out of college? It absolutely should be as rigorous. I mean, I think that what we will find is that the complexity of the task or the situation obviously changes when we're younger versus when we're older. We're not going to be able to have, you know, very young kids reading Plato or Shakespeare or, you know, dealing with a complex business problem, of course. But what my colleague and I discovered ultimately is that the thinking mechanism is the same, no matter what age we are. We have a neurobiological method for thinking in our brains that works and that we apply to every situation that we're in. And we have to become aware of what that is. And then we have to train it and refine it in order to improve it, much like we might have a natural ability to run. But if we're going to become an athletic runner, if we're going to be on a, a miler or, or a sprinter, we've got to train that if we're going to be competitive. Absolutely. So the same thing happens with respect to our thinking process. We all have a natural method for how to go and do it. We just aren't necessarily aware of what it is, and we don't know how to train it. Well, I'll tell you what, let's pick it up on the other side. Dr. Stephen Perlman with us. America's Critical Thinking Crisis is his book. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer Today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. On a 100-degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to his owner, one of only a few in that church to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible because he doesn't own one. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. We're partnering with Bible League International to send Bibles to 1,500 new believers in Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and every gift given right now will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We certainly need more critical thinking in this society. Boy, do we ever. Joining me is Dr. Stephen Perlman. He is co-founder of the Critical Thinking Initiative and author of America's Critical Thinking Crisis, The Failure and Promise of Education. And Steve, we were talking right before we went to the break about the fact that now we have these methods that didn't exist for a long time pertaining to critical thinking and teaching people how to do the critical thinking skills that they're going to need in life. What have you learned and what are the statistics and the, you know, the research? What does it all say about critical thinking and how to impart it? Well, the, the statistics with respect to the outcomes are horrible. Uh, we can't find any studies that show that colleges, college students uh, possess anything more than about a third of them possess some critical thinking skills, and that's the most favorable study that we can find. Some larger studies show that as few as 5% of college students graduate with critical thinking skills. Wow. And, yeah, it's, it's very horrifying. And... And some studies even show that critical thinking skills diminish over the course of college instead of improve, which is the most terrifying idea of all. It is. So in terms of how to teach it, really what it requires is a shift to some different teaching methodologies that really involve using problems as the incubus for the learning experience from the start and assessing students not on what answer they come to exactly in that, because most of these problems that we would confront students with don't have a direct answer. So we might say, well, how do we solve racism? Well, there's no one simple answer to how to solve racism. And it's not about just how much, you know, facts you know about racism. It is about, however, learning to assess them on on a thinking process on how well they present an idea on the complexity of that idea on the logic of that idea and so forth. Sure. And therefore, we have a way to standardize that in a sense, and we have a way to assess what's naturally occurring in their brain as well as for them to improve that process. So moving to different teaching methods that can occur in the same settings that we have, nevertheless, also improve critical thinking skills. Well, now this gets back to something that you address, which I think is very important when you talk about what our definition of education is and you discuss, for example, how education suppresses critical thinking. There are so many things going on in different schools nowadays. You think of in the younger grades, teach to the test, you know, and that doesn't really encourage critical thinking or the lecture system in college. But, But education itself, can you speak to that issue of what education ought to be in general that we need to wrap our heads around what we're doing here in the first place. Education has to be a matter of moving away from information and moving towards complexity, problems, fuzziness, grayness, 
in the world and contending with that. And that means that we need to have a standard by which we can assess how well students can reason through those things and not by the outcome again, necessarily, but by the process. And we have to allow students, and this is absolutely critical, we have to allow students a mechanism whereby they can create bad answers and incomplete solutions. And we call what we call this falling forward or failing forward and enable them the capacity to fail to regroup and come back again, because there's an interesting little part of our brain called the amygdala. And when the amygdala gets scared, it shuts off our prefrontal cortexes, which control our higher order reasoning. Right. And unfortunately, what happens when we are confronting students with, with high stake situations where one failure can have great consequences, we're actually shutting off their capacity to think. It's not just that they don't want to, it's that we're actually literally cutting off their brain's capacity to do it because they go into sort of a fight or flight mode. We need to relieve that pressure from our students and we need to give them the opportunity to say, look, you're going to confront you with this issue. You're going to come up with an idea and and it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be great the first time. And we're going to go back and give you some advice and let you tackle it again. And it's going to be okay. It's not going to affect your grade. And that is one of the key things that we need to do to start to allow the brain of the student to function in the academic environment. Yeah. Well, but you read a lot of stories these days because we're living in this kind of cancel culture mentality, a lot of political correctness, that sort of thing. And you see stories all the time of students like in colleges saying, I, I, you know, express my opinion and I got marked down because the teacher was of a different political persuasion and didn't like what I had to say. I mean, when you have that kind of environment, at least in some schools, how do you change the mindset? How do you deal with the underlying mindset that at least some educators have that if you don't agree with the teacher on the teacher's opinion, then you're going to get marked down? It would seem that fight or flight would kick in in that circumstance. Absolutely. And that's a great question. And I seldom get asked it. It's, uh, and there is some of that that happens in classes. And it's not even just that if students are expressing a different political opinion or something like that. It's very often that if we don't echo what the educator said about, you know, how to interpret this poem or what have you, that that we're getting marked down as well. And students certainly know that there is some of that that happens out there. And most faculty, I think, don't want to do it. And sometimes they do it unconsciously and some faculty do it intentionally and very, you know, a lot don't do it at all. But, But what we can do with faculty when we train them is we're able to say to them, here's the standard by which and the means by which you're going to assess what, you know, how the caliber of what somebody says and their thought on this issue. And it enables them to step away from that sort of subjective scale that they have in their head that might even be implicit or that might be subconscious to them and start using something that's more objective. So they're not, you know, and everyone knows what those rules are so that, um, so that the students feel freer to communicate their ideas because they know the basis on which their ideas are going to be examined as it should be. Right. Yes. And so that takes the pressure off everybody in that scenario. In fact, one of the things we talk about is making a distinction between opinions and thoughts. And we tell students that no faculty member really cares about their opinion at all and shouldn't. But we're defining opinion as something that's just personal preference, personal taste. Mm-hmm. Right. And so personal taste might be your favorite color. No one cares about that. But your opinion on any given subject matter isn't important either. But your thought is. And a thought is something that always comes out of evidence. Yes. And if you're able to make a logical step out of evidence, then you have something relevant and important. That's great. And that's how we try to keep the game going. That's great. Now, would you actually recommend having logic courses taught in schools? 
We recommend critical thinking courses be taught in school, and we think logic, informal logic, should be a portion of those larger classes. But critical thinking is a lot more than just logic. And unfortunately, that's actually where one of the missteps has been, that a lot of institutions or educators feel as though if they just teach logic, they've taught students how to think, which isn't necessarily true. You might have taught them how to spot or avoid some logical fallacies. That's not the same thing as teaching them how to solve a problem necessarily. That makes sense. That makes sense. So when you are teaching those who are educators to incorporate critical thinking and impart critical thinking skills to their students, in in what form should it be taught as far as which classes? Because there are lots of different subjects out there and it's hard to imagine in some classes, you know, it being a little, it would be a little bit harder than in others. So for example, like if you're in in an English class, how do you encourage critical thinking, how would you teach your students in a different way than often English students are taught to get their critical thinking skills up to speed? It's a great question. And there's, there's actually some debate in the field of researching critical thinking that feels as though the critical thinking is going to be different in English than it's going to be in the chemistry class and then it's going to be in a social studies class or what have you. Right. But what we've determined uh, in the breakthrough that we made is realizing that there is this neurobiological foundation for thinking in all of us. And it doesn't matter what class you're in. It okay. doesn't matter if you're in English class or your thing. Now, what does change, of course, is is the content changes, right. the context changes, right? So right. examining a Shakespeare play is not the same thing as looking at a moment in history. Those are different contexts, but the process doesn't have to change. And if we know that if we can get students to practice the same process, whether they are in English class or whether they are in their next class or the class after that, then we know that their thinking skills can really elevate because now we're not confronting them with different intellectual challenges every time in terms of a different kind of thinking. We're always confronting them with the same one and they can practice it and practice it and practice and get better at it. And educators like that because imagine if you were teaching juniors and seniors and they had already had two full years of critical thinking training by the time they reached your course. Think about how much more you could do with them than you would be doing with them otherwise. That would be great. Does that necessitate a lot more interaction with each student when you are up in front of the classroom? It does. We, we it really encourage the students to become the more active voices in the classroom as we try to tell educators. And it's, it's essentially true. Uh, there are some exceptions to this and so forth. But, um, you know, the more they're talking, the less the students are thinking. So certainly it requires giving students the agency to engage the problems, to engage the ideas, to try to figure things out. And the teacher serves as a different role rather than doing the song and dance in front of the room all the time. (laughs) The teacher serves as a resource and a support system for those students and occasionally, you know, teaches something more directly and didactically, which is also important at times. But the percentages shift radically in the other direction. Oh, yeah. Something else you said in your book, Steve, which I really appreciated, is you stress the importance of writing, how important writing is to actually developing critical thinking skills. Talk a little bit about that, if you would, because I think people can really wrap their heads around it a little bit better when they realize, you know, they're putting their thoughts down and and codifying them rather than just having a mishmash in their brain. Uh, Writing really helps that process. We have no better system for assessing how well someone is thinking and for teaching someone to think than writing. And it's because it requires that people put their thoughts in order, uh, use evidence, and are able to anticipate what their audience might think about what they're saying and all those concerns and objections and complexities. 
as well as we have a way to look at what somebody's thought and and consider it ourselves for a long period of time, not just off the cuff as we might in conversation. So writing is such an essential tool for us in being able to teach students to write, uh, to think critically, provided that they write through a method that's a thinking method and not write as they're typically taught to write, which is often, you know, to regurgitate. If you have that sort of five paragraph essay, <laughs> it's, it's an idea. It's three pieces of information or three sub ideas and then they're out. But none of that's really a thinking process. It's just stating a bunch of information usually or a summary. Yes, very good. Well, great book, America's Critical Thinking Crisis by Dr. Stephen Perlman. It's been great having you here. Thank you so much, Steve, for being with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. You take care. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, it was wonderful over this past weekend to be with the great folks over at Answers in Genesis at the Women's Conference, where I was privileged to be able to speak and talk about biblical discernment, combating the father of lies. And to all of you who were able to come, we just so enjoyed the weekend of fellowship and being encouraged. You know, it's kind of funny because when people come to a conference, generally you think you're the only one who's going to be edified. But in fact, I always find every conference I go to as a speaker, I get so fed, not just by you know, having fellowship with the other speakers and being able to interact with them and be able to pray with them and and encourage one another, but also by talking to the attendees. So it was just a wonderful time. And we're kind of playing catch up a little bit on some of the news just because I've been out of pocket for a few days. But I just want to, again, thank the great people at Answers in Genesis for a wonderful weekend. That ARC is something else. I'll tell you that ARC encounter is really something else. Wonderful time. But I want to catch up on one particular story, actually a couple of stories, but I'm going to get into as much as I can during this time that we have. Here And I want to talk a little bit about this gunman, this Robert Aaron Long, 21-year-old from Georgia, who is now charged with eight counts of murder. And you'll recall that he was the one who went to these Asian spas. And as it turns out, he was a member of Crabapple First Baptist Church in Milton, Georgia. According to the Washington Post, that church has now excommunicated him. They say that he is no longer considered a regenerate believer in Jesus Christ. Certainly understandable why they would say that. And they voted to remove him from the church's membership following an hour-long service dedicated to the eight people he is charged with killing at three Atlanta area spas last week. Now, our hearts are filled with so many emotions, with grief, anger, sadness, emptiness, confusion. This was from the associate pastor, Luke Folsom, in a prayer before a crowd of about 100 and, you know, other appropriate remarks. You know, I what really bugs me about this story is is the murders, first and foremost, clearly. This was just unconscionable what this person did. But what really is bothering me after that is how I am seeing people, even who are professing Christians, on the leftward trajectory, as you can imagine, going around and saying that because this young man had 
apparently struggled with sexual temptation and sex addiction and pornography addiction and his motivation for going into these spas and murdering these eight people, most of whom were Asian women, was because of purity culture in the church. That somehow purity culture in the church, the teachings of the church, not just his church, but evangelicalism in general, trying to say that you should flee sexual temptation, that somehow that was what sent him over the edge. And I just utterly reject that. It makes me really mad, actually, madder than I thought I would be, because I'm kind of used to the leftists and evangelicalism doing every thing that they possibly can at every turn to try and slam conservatives or anything related to conservative biblical theology. They, they never miss a moment or an opportunity to go off on conservatives. Somehow it is the fault of conservative Christian churches for teaching that you should be pure until you're married and that you should flee youthful lusts and that you shouldn't fornicate and you shouldn't commit adultery and you should stay away from pornography. I'd like to ask some of these people who are complaining about this, exactly how would you have solved it in your church? Should we just not talk about those things in the church? Because that didn't really work very well either, did it? And there are just a lot of bitter people, unfortunately. There are some people who had bad experiences in their churches or they're mad at their men, maybe mad at a father and mad at an ex-boyfriend or mad at an ex-husband and some man did them wrong. And so uh, I just it makes me a little crazy. It makes me a little crazy because I really don't understand what it is they expect churches to do. You're really in trouble either way, aren't you? Because I'm imagining for myself, if this church had not done enough to talk about the evils of lusts and sexual immorality, then would these same people have turned around and said, you call yourselves Christians and you didn't do anything to try to correct his thinking and blah, 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 blah. Look, here's how it goes in churches today. Churches are very much in too many instances, a come and go scenario where you don't necessarily know everybody that well. And you can only know somebody to the extent that they're involved in the church and you are interacting with them on a regular basis such that you can get a grip on what kind of mindset they have. Anybody can go forward in a Baptist church, receive Christ and be baptized. Anybody can say, yes, I'm transferring my letter from another Baptist church or or whatever it is. And most churches will just take you at your word and some churches will have an examination by the pastor or maybe some of the elders or church leadership. Let's make sure he's really a Christian or she's really a Christian. But it's not a perfect system, folks. It's not a perfect system. And for those who just immediately jumped to it was the church's fault. Oh, yes, we do believe it was really the gunman's fault. But it's just in some way the church's fault, I think, are off the rails. I think they're off the rails. I'm looking at this one article here. This is from a Notre Dame professor because who understands this scenario better than a Notre Dame professor? His name is Michael Ree. And the fact that he's writing over at Salon tells you a lot about him because <laughs> Salon is about as far left as you can get. Listen to this headline. Evangelical theology, the poison of white male supremacy and the Georgia spa killings. Right. Conservative American evangelicalism, he says, is steeped in the male supremacist ideology of complementarianism, a worldview that, among other things, asserts male privilege, valorizes male aggression and identifies males as the ones most fit for leadership and authoritative teaching, that this represents a corruption of Christian ideals and that many of its recent excesses are a faithful reflection of what one might call the evangelical cult of masculinity has been amply documented in this book and that book and the 
the other book and some of the ways in which these same ideals of masculinity are deeply intertwined with white supremacist ideology are documented. Traditional Christianity neither preaches nor condones acts like those perpetuated by the Robert Longs of this world, nor for that matter does conservative American evangelicalism. But there's always a but. It is both historically and philosophically naive to ignore the conceptual links between the white male supremacist ideologies that have long permeated the evangelical tradition and a wide range of atrocities committed against women and people of color. Actually, I utterly reject it because what I see is we have a double standard in the leftist world where when you talk about the slaughter, let's say, in a gay nightclub in Florida a few years back under President Obama, back when we had more terrorist attacks, uh, we were not supposed to talk about Islam because we didn't want to paint Islam as somehow being anti-gay. That would ruin the leftist narrative because only Christians are anti-gay. And it was somehow Christians' fault. There were people at the time who were blaming that on Christians too, even though Christians had, the Christians had nothing to do with the gay nightclub slaughter. But still there were people trying to link that slaughter, that mass murder to Christianity. There is nothing, these people are shameless. There is nothing that they will do that surprises me. Here's another one. This is from Religion News Service. For all your leftist evangelical bashing, go to Religion News Service. How pleading sexual addiction protects evangelical men. Given Long's exposure to Christian porn addiction recovery rhetoric, it likely contributed to his claim that his out-of-control sex addiction fueled his atrocious violence. We're just making it up at this point. Just making it up. So even if he went to try to get help, which he apparently did for his lusts and his temptations, Somehow that's evangelicalism's fault, too. The recovery center where he went to try to get help, it's their fault, too. You can't win with these people. And even Rachel Den Hollander, who came to everybody's attention because her testimony led to the conviction of that serial abuser, Larry Nasser, the gymnastics doctor, she spoke out about the objectification of women in evangelical spaces. And she tweeted out, as they point out over at Religion News Service again, uh, that the suspect in the killing of the eight people, a white Southern Baptist male, Uh, she said, blaming women for men's temptations, she said, is a tried and true evangelical posture. And she tweeted, this is happening in your pulpits, in your seminaries, in your counseling programs. It is in your marriage books, your books on womanhood and manhood. It is in your counseling sessions. Okay. Or he could be just crazy. Have you guys ever considered that? He was a one-off. Do you see 99% of the people in Southern Baptist, conservative Southern Baptist churches doing what that man did or is alleged to have done? No. Is it possible that everything is not an instance of a bigger narrative? That's the problem with all of this journalism, so-called, that is being put out there all the time. We we always have to find the bigger story. Sometimes the bigger story isn't there. It's just one evil man, one really evil man and potentially crazy man who is now going to be tried for murder, as he should be. Don't blame the church. The church was teaching the right things, and if somebody sins, what's the church supposed to do about that? Excommunicate him, which, by the way, they did. Stay with us. We'll be back. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Women in crisis pregnancies today are often under tremendous pressure to abort. But he was like, you're not ready for another baby. And at that moment, I felt that I'm not going to be able to be a mom to this baby. 
So I came to the pregnancy clinic. She said they go to heartbeat. That changed my life just from that ultrasound picture. These are the voices that a young mom in crisis hears. She wants to make the right choice, but society and those around her are telling her that a preborn baby is not a life. This is where the Ministry of Preborn steps in. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, shining a light into a mother's womb and introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside her. I'm going to keep my baby and I'm going to be a great mom. Join Preborn in helping young moms in crisis. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. That's 855-402-BABY. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health care program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new health care program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit health care sharing ministry that offers affordable health care sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We were talking a little bit about this Robert Aaron Long, who has been charged in eight murders in Georgia. Absolutely heartbreaking story. One of the other things that's annoying about the whole thing is how the left is trying to paint this as a racist thing. Even though this accused man's friend is saying there was no racial motivation whatsoever. It was all having to do with his struggles with sexual temptation. And in a moment of insanity, he just thought, well, if I get rid of the temptation, then that'll solve my problem. Well, I I really doubt his evangelical church was teaching him that. Just go out and do away with the women. Yeah, that's what purity culture teaches. Not at all. And and like I was saying before, I don't know. I have no idea what these leftist evangelicals would like the church to teach if they think that purity culture was somehow responsible for motivating this crazy person to do what he did. In any case, I go back to the Washington Post story about this excommunication of Robert Aaron Long from Crabapple First Baptist Church in Milton, Georgia. And they do mention that he had been at Hope Quest. This was in both 2019 and 2020, an evangelical treatment facility specializing in sex addiction and pornography addiction, as well as gay conversion therapy. There's no such thing as conversion therapy. Stop. That facility is less than a mile from this Asian spa, which was the site of the first attack. Uh, And they bring in all this stuff. Experts this week have said the mentality, Bayless described this as one of the people in the article, is common within evangelical purity culture, which teaches that sexual desire outside of marriage is sinful. And those who fail to control their lust are sometimes considered sex addicts. Okay, let me just point out for a minute, sex addicts are nowhere in the Bible. I'm not saying that there aren't people in the church who will use that psychological term, sex addict. I myself would be less inclined to use something like that and just 
call it what it is, which is sin. Everybody struggles with sin. The, the minute you try to turn everything into some kind of a psychological problem, you take away some of the moral responsibility. And that, you know, there's a fine line. I'm not saying that there aren't some disorders that need to be dealt with, but that one I have a little bit of a problem uh, with. So we'll see what happens with that. But white male supremacy, blah, blah, blah. I'm just not buying it. Just, I'm just not buying it. Sometimes people are just evil. So it just gives the left another occasion to kick churches. All right. I want to get to this story too. This is from Christianity Today. I I try not to read it, but in this case, I got to tell you this story. Did you hear what they're doing over at Wheaton College? Oh my word. They have a plaque in their chapel at Wheaton College honoring Jim Elliott and the other missionaries who were murdered in 1956 by the Aka Indians in Ecuador. Very famous story through Gates of Splendor, Elizabeth Elliott's famous book, talking about how her husband was martyred and these other Christian missionaries by this tribe out in the middle of nowhere. And then she went back and and with her daughter and eventually they were evangelized and uh, many of them came to know the Lord. And it's a wonderful, wonderful tale but now, you know, the woke have gotten a hold of it, and we've just got to rectify all these terrible injustices. Here's the story. More than 65 years after two of its alumni were killed in what became the most famous example of missionary martyrdom in the 20th century, Wheaton College wants to tell a better story to honor their work. Wheaton President Philip Riken announced this week that a plaque honoring alumni Jim Elliott and Ed McCulley, along with Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, and Pete Fleming, has been taken down from the campus chapel while a task force meets to suggest new phrasing to remove the word savage. That's why they're taking the plaque down. Elliot McCulley graduated in 49. They were killed after making peaceful contact with this indigenous group in Ecuador. And then their classmates donated the plaque after that. In describing the tribe, then called Aucas, which means savage in the lowland language, the plaque reads, for generations, all strangers were killed by these savage Indians. That's what's offensive. Contemporary accounts of the mission now refer to the tribe by the name they call themselves Wairani. In his emailed statement, Riken said the term savage is a pejorative term that has been used historically to dehumanize and mistreat indigenous peoples around the world. Any descriptions on our campus of people or people groups should reflect the full dignity of human beings made in the image of God. You're taking down the plaque to Jim Elliott because the word savage is in it. Do you know what the word savage actually means? Look up the word savage. Look up the word savage. It's a completely... Good use of the word. And by the way, didn't Elizabeth Elliot write a book called The Savage My Kinsman? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying here, you're going to take down the plaque. Are, were there people out in this tribe who are still living there today who were horribly offended by the plaque, which has been there for now 70 years? No, no, nobody from the tribe, so far as I can tell, cared one whit. It was about a dozen comments from students and members of the campus community. So apparently the woke on the Wheaton College campus were offended by this 70 years in and decided to make a big deal about it. And they quote Joseph Moore, who is the director of marketing communications. They say that they received about a dozen comments about the plaque. And he said the president released the statement because the plaque had been temporarily removed and leadership wanted the campus community to know about its review, rewording and return. The change comes at a time, Christianity Today says, when Gen Z Christians are rethinking the church's historical approach to international missions. Fantastic. It's great. This generation is going to teach the old generation of missionaries how to be better missionaries. (laughs) 
got to be kidding. Right, because Wheaton is going to produce the next uh, Hudson Taylor or Jim Elliott. Okay, I would love to see that. Last year, a Barna study found that 38% of the adults under 35 agreed with the statement in the past missions work has been unethical compared with 23% of older adults. What What do you mean missions work has been unethical? Well, it's because it's colonizing, y'all. It's colonizing. It's horrible. The rewording of the Wheaton plaque also reflects how the narrative around the Ecuador missionaries has evolved And they point out that Through Gates of Splendor was written in just eight weeks and submitted right before the first anniversary of her husband's death. And in subsequent writings, Elizabeth sought to dispel the idea of the Wairani as wild savages and Americans as the great saviors through her third book, The Savage, My Kinsman. Yeah, but don't you have to cancel that book because it has the word savage in it? I mean, I think Christianity Today should be picketed because you ran this book title in your story. And pretty soon, indigenous peoples around the world are going to rise up, or at least a couple dozen people on the Wheaton College woke campus are going to rise up and get offended by Christianity today. Okay. I mean, just carry on. Then it goes on to say several evangelical institutions have taken the opportunity to, quote unquote, do better in the ways they remember their missionary past. Uh, aren't you tired of this stuff? I'm so tired of this stuff. And you always have to do these caveats. Yes, it's true that there were certain times and certain ways with certain people where the missionary task was not fulfilled perfectly. Yeah, who are these people to stand in judgment of anybody? When I think about some of the greatest missionaries I know, and I served as a short-term missionary myself several times, you know, you're going out on the mission field, you have great expectations. And in many cases, when you're going on the mission field as a full-time missionary, you're raising your own support, you're giving up your home, you're giving up your livelihood, and you're going overseas and you're sacrificing something tremendous because you are called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and do church planting because you care about people on the other side of the world who don't know the Lord. And so you're sometimes when you're over in some of these foreign countries, you're in great danger. You're putting your life on the line in some cases. Some of these missionaries, as we know, have been arrested and thrown in jail. I mean, there have been all kinds of things that have been suffered by missionaries from the United States, not because they want to colonize anybody, but because they want to obey the Great Commission. And who are these woke 20-year-olds sitting around and judging all former missionaries as a bunch of racists, you know, and a bunch of colonizers? We need to do better and we need to go back and we need to... Who are these people to sit in judgment on any of these missionaries? Nobody's perfect. And I, I, I just see increasingly with this woke movement that you have people who've basically done nothing in their lives yet passing judgment on some really great people in the past who are not at all guilty of what they're charged with, which is your bunch of colonizing racists. It's simply not true in most cases. I can't speak for every missionary who's ever been sent to another place in the world, but there's just such a premise of guilt that is put on everybody. If you use the word savage, you're just being dehumanizing or There's another likelihood if you're using the word savage to describe tribes that are so remote that they're not at all civilized because they've been so cut off from the world. That's actually a proper use of the nomenclature of the word savage. That's what it actually means. Now, if you don't like the word savage, you can petition the the Webster's Dictionary people and get it removed and put it with some, you know put something in there that's a little bit more palatable. And in about five years, a new generation of students are going to come along who are woker than you are and decide that your chosen word is now offensive to them. And we can just keep this up for a while and accomplish nothing. You know, instead of worrying about one word on a plaque, how about you? 
concentrate at Wheaton College on spreading the gospel, first and foremost to your students, and then encourage them to go out into the world and spread the gospel all across this earth to people who do need to hear it. That's the main work that we're about. And whining about this word or that word just seems like a really big waste of time. Thank you for joining us. We've got to leave it there. We'll see you next time right here. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This hour of Janet Meffer today has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.